Welcome to MediaPath. I am Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Today on the show, we are three guests strong. And within those three guests, one of our guests is three people, which brings us to a record total of five guests on one podcast. Here's a fun cross-promotional fact. Each of our guests are show hosts who have bravely had Fritz and me as guests on their shows. We'll begin with podcaster, author, radio host, Robert Manny. Then the councils will join us for backstage at the Andy Williams Moon River Theater in Branson. And we'll round out the show with NPR's Steve Chiotakis. And he's going to share his latest projects and break down some election results for us. With a podcast full of guests, Fritz and I are going to be bullet pointing our media picks for you this week. So, Fritz, what have you got? Well, I've said this a couple times before. For my money, one of the best shows ever produced for television is The Crown. Yes. And they just dropped season five. One of the most interesting episodes is about four in when they do the whole history of the Fayed family. Dodi Fayed was Diana's boyfriend at the time of her death. The story goes all the way back to when his father, Mohammed Fayed, was a little boy and always had a fixation with the royal family. So it's a really fascinating arc from this little boy's fixation with royalty to his son dating a princess and all of it seems preordained especially when he buys Harrods the biggest department store in the world in London and amazing I also watched episode six last night which is really wonderful it's the whole Martin Bashir story where this BBC journalist forged documents to get an interview with Princess Diana really interesting I just love it, and I can't help but sort of picture the royal family kicking back and going, hey, let's see what's going they on. They do watch it. Do, do they? They do watch it. I don't know what the reaction is, but they do watch it. Okay. All right. I'd love to watch it with them and have them press pause and go, that's not what I said. <laughs> <laughs> so I am watching, was spe- speaking of British ladies, and, and we are thematically today, I am watching and recommending 19th century British lady detectives whose efforts to lend their unique skills to the betterment of all within a patriarchal society are stalwart and empowering. If you hunger for strong historical female heroes and richly detailed Victorian settings, you will love Miss Scarlet and the Duke on PBS starring Kate Phillips and Stuart Martin. And Enola Holmes on Netflix, starring Millie Bobby Brown, Henry Cavill, and Sam Claflin. So how are men adapting to the collective amplification of female roles and voices? Our first guest, Robert Manny, has been studying exactly that. Robert is a guy's guy looking at life through a guy's lens because he's a guy with some stuff to say about guys to guys. Robert Manny is the host of Guys Guy Radio, a podcast and a weekly primetime radio show on KCAA in Southern California. Robert's show features a dynamic spectrum of guests from the worlds of celebrity, modern relationships, writing, career guidance, wellness, diet, sports, music, and spirituality. Robert has written The Guy's Guide, The Guy's Guy's Guide, <laughs> Robert can say the name of his book, The Guy's Guy, Guide to Love. His YouTube channel is called Guy's Guy TV, and he's pulling his efforts together under, you guessed it, The Guy's Guy banner. Welcome, Robert, and tell us, if you will, about your brand and your perspective. Well, thank you so much, Louise, and thank you, Fritz, and I really enjoyed having you on my show, so I'm so excited to be here. Well, my brand's really about trying to do the very best I can to help men kind of keep up, because this is a time where, in some ways, it's paradoxical, because men have never been more free to be whoever they want to be, yet it's also a time where it's never been less clear who men really are. While women are on a steady path of achievement and long overdue recognition, Guys have kind of fallen behind, and for younger guys, they don't have a lot of role models. They've they've got the MMA, manscaping, superheroes, (laughs) 
for the boomers. You know, we're kind of being put out the pasture in the eyes of some folks. And I think really men have to take it in a positive light because this is a terrific time for men. I actually think it's the best time ever to be a man. And what we need to do, it's pretty simple. We need to pay attention and to listen to what women have to say because women have been kind of kept down for not hundreds of years, but thousands of years. And this is a time where change is happening very rapidly. And unfortunately for guys, they're kind of caught in the crosshairs in terms of what's happening. And it's challenging to them because they're not sure sometimes what their roles are. What do you think is men's greatest misunderstanding about women? And then the reverse of that. Well, I can only speak for myself. I think what men, what they, we, what we need to do more of is pay attention. Um, I think women are fantastic at paying attention to the details and really knowing how to read their guys and what's going on. And men uh, pay attention, but usually it's more about themselves. So I don't know if men have taken enough time to really think about what it is that they don't really understand about women. And instead, a lot of guys just either throw their hands up in the air and just, or say, hey, you know, it doesn't matter. I am who I am, and that's the way it is. And I think that's a big mistake. Well, you know, in, in your branding, you kind of talk about men falling behind, but then you go on to say this is not a competition. So do you mean that they're sort of falling behind in terms of evolving into all they could be or all they all they hope to be or all they've always secretly wanted to be? And, yes. and kind of like from little boy on, in all kinds of like subliminal ways, they're taught, you know, what a man is. And some of their interests get squashed or some of their instincts get squashed. And so maybe they're focusing on themselves because they're so preconditioned to make sure that they're being a man enough, being enough of a man, that that becomes a preoccupation. Yeah, that's a great point, Louise. It's tricky. I have a nine-year-old son, and I've been watching the situation. My wife and I have been watching very carefully how it's about it because they seem to be really taking into consideration the, the individuals, and everybody's treated fairly, and it's not like, well, you're a boy, and you do this, and you're a girl, and you do that. Uh, it's it's humanity, and I think that's really terrific. And it, it takes a while for guys to get over that. It's not just a – you can't just flip the switch for men, particularly guys like, you know, Fritz and myself, we're boomers. We're not going to change instantly, but if we're open-minded and we start to listen a little bit more as to some of the uh, – I don't want to say grievances, but some of the issues women have, and deservedly so, we need to listen to them and hear what they have to say. And I think it's all been coming out, whether it's Me Too or just the breakthroughs in various industries, that women are really forging ahead. And uh, a lot of guys get confused by it, and as, as you look at the numbers – Men are not uh, educating themselves the same way. The, the the attendance in college, the graduations are down. Men versus women, and it's a it's a different uh, trajectory. It's a different trend, and I think we have to keep close eyes on that, close tabs on it, because we really want everybody to kind of all boats to rise. You know, I know that we know that the that men and women are different, and now we know there's more to gender spectrums than we had ever realized. But I still think that there's a lot of pressure on boys to be a breadwinner, to be a person that's if you're going to have a family, like it's going to be all it's going to be on you, whether or not everybody eats and everybody has a home. And that pressure, I think, builds as you move through your childhood. I, I've never been a man. But did you guys feel that as you were growing up? For me, absolutely. That was just the expectation. So it wasn't like a, a pressure. It was just that's how we were conditioned. I'm not sure what your thoughts on it. It was modeling from our parents and modeling from other adult men in the family. 
Yeah, that was the expectation. So we didn't really think about, oh, my God, I have all this pressure on me. It was just this is how guys live. And we didn't really think about, well, the women are going to have a different type of expectation or a different path. We just figured this is what we do. This is what dad did. Some things will be different. But, you know, we're we're putting ourselves forward one step at a time to really be a breadwinner and take care of ourselves and take care of our families. And I don't think we did a lot of uh, circumspection about that in terms of well, are our roles changing or, you know, what's the roles of women while we were growing up and getting into it? I think we just did our thing. I think that women understand men better than men understand themselves. But what do you think a woman's greatest misunderstanding about men is? Well, I would, um, you know, respectfully, I would I don't think women understand men better than men understand men, because ultimately a woman isn't a man. And you really have to be to be one to to, to know one in the in the full spectrum. Mm-hmm. So I, I think guys they 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 they're mistakenly considered more complicated than they are. I think a lot of times women because they pay attention so well they're thinking there's all kinds of things going on in the guy's mind and there they might not be. I find that with most of the guys I know if they have an issue they bring it up. If they don't, that means they're happy. Now that sounds pretty simple, but maybe just that's the way it is. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And a lot of times women in an effort to make the relationship as good as as it can be, they'll do a lot of thinking in terms of like, what, what about this? What about that? And getting really into the details. And you can see when men and women have conversations or arguments, even disagreements, where a woman many times wants to keep going and really drill down. And that's understandable. And the intention is good. And a lot of times guys are like, well, this is my opinion. I'm sorry if you don't agree with me. And I think that's kind of where the separation is in terms of how men and women think differently. And I, I think along with that, women are more prepared to go deeper emotionally than men are. Even in discussing it, women are not afraid to sort of look inward and figure out where the feelings are coming from and express those. Men have to have this outer crust to protect themselves against the onslaught of other you know, alpha males. And it, it's just interesting. In, in my family, it's always been the women who have been able to bear down on whatever the emotional problems are. I think there may be more vulnerability for that a guy might feel to reveal something that might, like as Fritz was talking about, like within the pecking order of male men being men together, that you're just not supposed to show that kind of weakness. That, you know, they give each other the business in different ways than women do. You know, women can be mean, but men can be uh, like a little rough and uh, and you have to, you know, be a man and, and take it or, you know, you get mocked or teased or whatever. And I, I kind of wanted to um, press on that a little bit in terms of like toxic masculinity and ask you, because I've been kind of playing with this theory that I think it may be cause, the root cause may be fathers bullying and belittling their sons. And that may that, that may be the, the core of it because that, of course, is hereditary. So if, if a father is saying to his son, you little fairy or what, whatever, then he's going to try to be ultra strong and he's going to do that to his kid. And I think that once they get to adulthood, they're not going to talk about that because it would be embarrassing to admit that your father called you those types of, those types of names. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's a lot there. There was uh, toxic masculinity is is certainly an issue, but we have to be careful not to paint a wide brush with it. And uh, dads being tough with their sons, 
um, you know, there's a fine line where you, you, they want to bring out the best in their sons and they know that other dads are going to be tough with their sons also. And they, they have to be prepared for competition, whether it's in the classroom or on the sporting field. Uh, so you want to have a high bar there, but you don't want to be into a bullying situation or putting your son down, of course, because that's not going to really help anybody. And that's that's a human issue where nobody really benefits from being bullied. And you know what? Women bully guys and guys bully other guys and fathers bully sons. And it just it goes all around. And bullying is an issue in our society nowadays. Why it's bigger now than before, I don't know, but it seems to be something that every parent needs to be mindful about. And I think the best thing to do is really, if you're a parent, is really listen and get a sense as to if you have a son like I do, how is he like me? How is he different? How can I help him be the person that he is? Because, you know, I got married late in life and I thought, oh, when we had a, a child, he'll be like half like my wife and half like me. Of course, that was completely Neanderthal thinking, but <laughs> I realized what a beautiful uh, person my son is and how much of a teacher he is to me. He is to me. Yeah. I, will be I will be tough on him. We go out and we, we play ball together. I'm gonna really drill into him uh, the fundamentals and the importance of practice and the importance of repetition and the importance of getting things down to muscle memory. Um, because other people aren't going to do that. And um, I'm not going to coddle him on that yet. I'm his biggest supporter. And I make sure that he, he number one, he sees sports and other activities as fun, because that's the way it should be. Uh, you, you and Louise both brought up a good point about toxic masculinity. I wouldn't say this was toxic. But the masculinity that my father showed, classic World War II, uh, post-World War II father, and... <clears throat> Uh, he, he was not emotional at all. He, he kept all of his feelings inside. And I think that was a post-war syndrome of men who say, look, we survived the war. Hitler's not in charge. We made it through the Depression. I'm providing you a beautiful home, three squares a day. Um, you have a safe place, a roof over your head. That my obligation is done. I, that that was his obligation. His obligation wasn't to drill down and find out the many layers of my emotional issues. My mom did that a little bit, but it was it was the expectation of masculinity at certain times. I think it's a product of the time. He was also a softy at heart, but he had this external crust because he was a businessman and always had to put up a tough front. And I, I think those, thankfully, those expectations are settling down now. But I always felt. Bad for my dad that he that he couldn't be he couldn't explore his feminine side as as much as I think he would have liked to because it was expected for a man to put up a crusty front in those times. I think in general terms you're you're correct, Fritz. But every situation is different, and there are um, exceptions. With my dad, he was in World War II. He won a Bronze Star. He was a medic. He was doing some type of work that I didn't know about when he got home from there. And um, he was a tough businessman, yet he was always available. And that's the thing I really love and respect about him is that he was always there for me. He didn't, if I needed to talk about something, about feelings or a situation, whether it's work or personal, he was always there. And I don't think I could ask for more than that, particularly because of all those things his generation went through that you mentioned, Fritz. So just being there and being available, I think, is pretty much something that a, a son could be very uh 
very grateful for to your, be. Your father a, was more evolved than mine, that's for sure. Okay. My father also suffered from alcoholism, and that helped to shut him down ah, the rest okay. of the way. But, but uh, it, it, I'm just speaking in general terms about expectations mm-hmm. of the male role model have changed over the last years, and I'm so happy. And I think that's the equality of responsibilities coming in marriages now. Women have reached a little bit of an equality, not as much as we would like, but they, but, but they talk to one another eye to eye instead of the man being condescending. So maybe men are allowed to be more emotional now. I don't know. You know that's a slippery slope also. And I agree, I agree with you completely. But you know what? Women want, a lot of times they say they want the men to show their feelings. Yet if a, a, you, you don't want the guy to be a blubber puss and be crying all the time either. There has to be a fine line <laughs> where, you know, you're, you're a man and you know how to express your feelings at the right time in the right way. But it has to be kind of measured in a way because women don't want men to be men. You know, I've interviewed a lot of uh dating experts, a lot of male and female dating experts. And to a person, all of the female dating experts say that women want to date. They want men to be men in the best sense of the word. That doesn't mean arrogant. It means confident. It means kind. It means respectful. It means fun. It means being a guy's guy, but it doesn't mean being a macho jerk. So that, you know, you're you're threading a, like a delicate needle, especially when it comes to matters of the heart and hoping to win over the heart of, of someone that, that, you, that you're interested in from the guy's perspective. It feels that to me seems like a narrow lane. So what are what are some of the mistakes that men make when they're when they're trying to go deep, like past the third date, when they're trying to have like a like a, a meaningful conversation, but not becoming too emotional for her to handle? You know, that's that's a great question. Um, when I m- first met my wife, we went on three dates and I had been in long-term relationships and I really enjoyed them, but they never ultimately worked out to marriage, if you will. And I, I was having such a great time with my wife-to-be. And at the time we were just dating, I said, what do I need to do to be a good boyfriend? And she, we were out to eat and she put her fork down and she looked at me and she said, pay attention. And I said, is there anything else? And she said, no. And it really but made a light bulb go off above my head. And I realized that just be myself, but be more be more mindful of that. I'm not the only person in the room. And I think a lot of guys fall into that trap, maybe because we've been allowed to be that way or the expectations that we talked about, Fritz. But I think men need to be mindful as to the things that are going on with women, the same way that women are so fantastic at keeping up with the details as to they can read your mood. They know what's, if there's something wrong, they're going to ask some questions. And a lot of guys, a lot of times guys aren't going to do that. And I think we need to be better at being present mindful and paying attention and if we did those three things and just continue to be ourselves otherwise things will get good really fast well I, I'll, I'll give you an action item robert and i am no okay. relationship expert but actually you know a guy might listen to that and say i'm not sure exactly what he means because i'm you know i need to order you know some food and not and worry about it in my teeth and like i you've given me too much to think about so here's like a specific swing thought for the golfers out there um, ask a follow-up question. So in other words, you may, you might say, tell me about your, your childhood. Don't let her just talk and then talk about your childhood. I mean, right. even though I'm sure she wants right, to hear right. about it, but let her know that you listened by saying, oh, so your dad was I- interested in, in, uh, in his garden, you know, and, uh, what kind of flowers did he grow? So, 
Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, the best way to show an interest is to ask a follow-up question. That lets them know that not only were you listening, but you're really interested. I agree with you a thousand percent. It's great advice. And uh, I hope I hope men are listening out there because it'll really score a lot of points. And I, not not that that's a game, but you know what? One of the things that's happening nowadays is dating should be a fun sport, and so many people uh, treat it like a business transaction, uh, and it's a, like an interview. And it really needs to be more. You know what happened to romance? I think if we got back to that a little bit, and you know, with the online dating and the check marks and the must-haves and all of that, let's just have some fun. I got to tell you, when I was dating online, I had s- such a blast, and I have friends who I met online, women who are long-term friends and business associates, and it, there's no, they're people. It's, you can make friends. It's always good to meet new people. You don't want to tangle things up when, with the relationship stuff, but you know, people are people. So if you look at things in an open mind saying, am I meeting somebody new? That's a pretty cool person that I want to hang out with. That's a really great thing. Not every situation is going to turn into a romantic uh, partnership, but people need to mix it up with people more and not be so judgmental. So you wrote a novel, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love. What came first, the novel or your podcast? Uh, The novel. Everything started with the novel. Um, I had written a prior book to learn how to write, really. And uh, uh, I learned all about the industry. I learned what I needed to do right. I realized I needed to write something in the third person. And I just had a thought about this book. The title came to me first. And I wrote about um, the world I knew, which is the world of advertising. And it's about two men in New York competing for love, sex, power, and money. And the one main character, he decides, well, he's asked by his ex-girlfriend to write a column for a woman's magazine publication about men. And he refuses to do it. And he refuses to do it. And he refuses to do it until his best friend starts messing around with one of his clients. And then he takes the gloves off and says, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to reveal what a lot of guys are really like and see what happens there. And from there, uh, the roles get reversed. A lot of things happen. There's a lot of savvy women in the novel. There's a lot of, uh, you know, guys who need to really wake up. And uh, there's a lot of sex and there's a lot of fun. And Dan Wakefield, the iconic 20th century author of uh New York in the 50s and starting over, he called my book the male successor to Sex in the City, so I couldn't ask for a better blurb. Wow. Absolutely. That is quite flattering. So how's the definition of a guy's guy changed over the last 10 or 15 years? Well, you know, a guy's guy is really, he's not a, he's not a macho man. He's really more contemporary man. He's uh, emotionally available. He respects women. Uh, guys like him, women like him. He can be your friend. If it's women, you can be your, your lover. And uh, it's it's somebody that's positive and really the type of person you want to hang out with and you can trust and that you like. And that's really what I hope a lot of men will start to think about. How can I do things for other people? How can I be a, a guy that's not a predator? How can I really develop relationships with my female friends, with female partnerships and also my buddies? I have to say, um... Your podcasts stretch way beyond relationships. There's some really wonderful ones, and I started to listen to them. You, you did you. one called Jewish Gangsters versus the Nazis with Michael Benson. That was yeah. fascinating. So it was New York Jews that, that, that were in their own sort of underworld, and that was fascinating. And there was another good one called Resurrection with Paul Selig. So you sort of stretch your titles into all sorts of interesting areas. 
Well, I got to tell you what happened, Fritz, was I, I wrote the novel and then uh, life imitated art in that I started blogging about men for women on my website. And then I started to do the podcast and I got a lot of uh, dating and relationship experts on the show. And then a few publicists discovered me and they started sending me different types of people. And I thought, you know what? The, let me let this thing grow organically. And if I can do anything to help raise the vibration, the frequency of the planet to help men be the, as good as they can be to help women help men, I think that would be a positive. So I get I, I'm deluged with uh, with guest uh, requests and it's fantastic. And the show keeps growing. We've been downloaded in over 101 countries. The YouTube now is up and running. We've got, we're on Rumble and I've got some other books in the works. So uh, all systems go and I'm, I'm having a blast. And you know what? We're doing anything we can to uh, bring new information to people and help them. Well, you're an interesting guy. Great podcast, my friend. Thank you. It's just, it, thank you so much for the work that you do. It's so valuable. Thank you. And thank, and you, thank for, you for being on my show. You guys are awesome. I love the work you're doing. And um, I love the cow sills. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, you're on the same bill with them. So we'll say hi. Excellent. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, guys. All right, Robert. Take See care. You, Robert. Take Bye-bye. care. All right. For those of you who might be checking out Media Path for the first time, we'd like you to be hipped to what we're doing. This is episode 118, I think. Is it 118? No, this is 115, Fritz. 118 is where I want to be. That's what I'm, that's my goal. You're very aspirational. We'd love, to check out, we'd love you to check out our vast library of past episodes at mediapathpodcast.com. You can hear us hanging out with a wide variety of guests. For instance, episode three, a subject close to my heart, Motown, episode seven. We have Dateline host Keith Morrison talking about the red-hot topic of true crime. In episode 90, we have guys that uh, did the writing of the music in uh, Dirty Dancing. So check us out, Media Path Podcast on YouTube as well for lots of additional visual content. Legendary family band, The Cow Sills, are joining us with new music. Their recently dropped critically acclaimed album is called Rhythm of the World. They have their own podcast. They travel every summer with the Happy Together Tour. And The Cow Sills star in the documentary we made together called Family Band, The Cow Sills Story, which you can find and enjoy on Amazon Prime. Paul, Susan, and Bob Cowsill are coming to us from backstage at the Andy Williams Moon River Theater in Branson. Woo-hoo. You're a part of their big Christmas show. Tell us about the show. What do people see when they come. First, first, I would like to make one correction. We refer to it as Louise Palanker's documentary, oh, thank you. Family oh, Band, right. The Story of the Councils. Sorry, the Councils. So just, just to set the record straight Len, on that. Lenny Reifenstahl presents The hey, Councils. That's you? right. Stop. There's almost but as I many atrocities. <laughs> yes, Paul? I, I, I will tell you that... Um, you know, when we were kids, I know, Louise, you know all about these things. And Fritz, you probably do, too. When they had craft music halls and they would have, you know, their Christmas craft music hall. And we would get to be on those shows. And, man, mm-hmm. they were so much fun and doing little skits and doing things other than what you would normally do. And uh, and this is so much like that. You know, we're in a bunch of productions <laughs> where they're not looking at us. They're looking at the dancers behind yeah. us. Mm-hmm. The only oh, difference cool. is. Yeah. Is that learning all those dance moves while singing all those songs was a heck of a lot easier back in 1968? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, sorry, Bob. I know you want to talk, but yeah, the right. other thing about it is, is that is that we got handed all these Christmas carols that you know one would think that we would have known by now. You would, but, but you know, little did I know that rocking around the Christmas tree had a pumpkin pie in it. Oh yeah. And I thought that Andy was making up these lyrics, and come to find out. I had been making up my own lyrics all these years. Yeah. So I had to just learn what I thought it was and relearn. 
That's uh, it for me. That's okay, Bob. you had the schoolyard <laughs> version. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also, Bob. Hey. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will tell you a big difference. Okay. Like even in an orchestra setting, the best orchestra in the world, all of the musicians have their music stand and their their notes and their their what I need to play to do this great part. In this production, you get no quote unquote music stand. There are no monitors no there's there no, prompters. no yes. prompters, teleprompters. <laughs> teleprompters you've got to memorize everything and i'm at 73 i have reached a certain tier in my artistic <laughs> life i am the oldest person in this musical production <laughs> and i'm the second oldest uh, you're that yeah. you're, you're at no, that no, point seriously. yeah honest to god yeah. guys when we started with uh happy together back eight years ago you're the baby we still are in yeah. fact we need to may always go to happy together where we are still the youngest the people babies, on the tour yeah they don't want to say impressionable but, things around you yeah. what's yes, more fun yes, is, is it more fun touring now that you're older and care less than it was when you were younger and being ordered around which is more fun huh good question Bob, Paul. Well, I mean, look at—we're having the time of our life. So if that's not having more fun than we had before, then I don't know what is having more fun. Um, the only—well, these are great, you see, because un unlike the Happy Together tour, where we're on a bus and we're thinking we're sleeping great, but we're not. We think we're eating great, and we're not. And you know, no, we know we're it's not very stressful on the Happy Together tour for some reason. It could be personnel or what have you. But here, it's Christmas. And it's Andy Williams. Mm. And so everybody respects what yeah, we're doing. It's really here. a nice and, vibe. And we're not moving and we're going to these bitching apartments, right, Bob? Right. Yeah. Six mm -hmm. nights a week, the audience is coming to us, yeah. which is the opposite mm. of the happy together. Yeah. Yeah. And this is why we understand the the uh, acts that want to go to Las Vegas and get a residency. And I'm tired of going to the audience, let the audience come to us. And we're experiencing that. Because, yeah. right, the, the stress of the Happy Together Tour is the show's over. Hurry up, hurry up. we got to pull out real quick. Uh, you know, it's like always that. Crazy. We're here. Hurry up, hurry up. we got to go back to, to, to our, our cozy little, little houses. <laughs> we have these large, large apartments. Large, that, large. You know, it's yeah. actually timeshare. It's a timeshare building, uh, you know, yeah. kind of thing. So we're in these big apartments with a kitchen, a normal size fridge, and normal everything. Decorated for Christmas. Some and, of us. and so we really are getting quality sleep here. Right. Quality sleep. And you come from singing with two people to honestly, I'm singing Jingle Bells with probably 15 or 16 <laughs> people. I mean, this is fantastic support, I must say. <laughs> Is it all Christmas it. music, yeah. or do you get to do some stuff from Rhythm of the World or any of your earlier hits? Oh, no, no Rhythm of the World, but we are definitely doing the hit. We're doing, what are we doing? Three we're doing hits? Rain, Indian, and Hair. Yeah, oh, okay, and then cool. we do a Christmas uh, song. Yeah, we, we do, do a little forest song segment in the first half, and the Lettermen are also on the show. Now, we're reconstituting this show. It's its first time back in three years. This has been gone like everything. Yeah. So Branson's about 50% back at best. Mm -hmm. And so, but every night we got a wonderful audience there. Now look, this was a 2,200 seater Andy built that he filled every night during his heyday. So Bob, well, what you need to know is this, when you guys, when I lost touch with you guys, when I was a kid, my next like obsession was the Letterman. And I loved that obsession, oh right, Susan? Because it got me familiar with the whole American songbook. Like every, the Letterman have recorded every great song ever. I yeah. can go with that. And yeah. the harmonies, and like I was obsessed. And so I'd go to the department store and look through the record bins and find Letterman albums like from, you know, oh, cool. 1963. And I was like, yeah, that was my big thing. So that's cool. So well, give them big hugs. 
I will, but these Letterman's weren't born in 63. Right, it's new Letterman, right? <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you something. Yeah. And I know you love their songs and everything. And this is, if you want to come to Branson, come. you can hear the Letterman's and the council's vocal stacks connect like magic wow. and combine and sing together. And it's really been a, a hoot and a holler. I don't know if my head and my heart could even take it. That's mm-hmm. so much it's love crazy. and harmony. It's crazy. I would just... And you're there until December 9th, and then the next day, you're in Wisconsin. You guys are touring like 18-year-olds. We are. Boy, the the, the thought of of flying day of show in the north is pretty scary, I'll tell you. Which Mm -hmm. we are doing, and we don't normally do. Yeah, uh, boy. Duty calls. But yeah, we're that busy. Thanks a lot, Fritz. We're really relaxing. I wanted to remind you that this is all going to come to a crash well, and I, end here I, soon. I can relax you uh, right now very easily because we're going to play a game, and I know you love games. This game is called Teen Mag Trivia, and uh, are you ready to play? 16 magazine. Okay. Um, yeah, I wish our lighting was a little better in here. Actually, you look great. Great. I'm like completely washed All right. No, in, a, in a 16 magazine article entitled Susie Squeals on the Cow Sills, what uh-huh. secrets did she reveal about Bob? Okay, first of all, by asking this as a trivia question, you are assuming that any one of my brothers would read an article about me in 16 magazine. Like, that would never happen. Susan, they came to you and said, Give us secrets about oh, it. Never happened. No, no. To your point. No, 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 no. Well, here's the thing. No, 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 no. no, no, no. To be fair. Well, right. no. Yeah. To, to be fair. Right. On. My experience with 16 Magazine, mm-hmm. there are times when they would come over to your house and interview you. Yeah. There yeah. were times when you had to fill out these little questionnaires. Yes. There were times when they were there wrangling these ridiculous articles. Mm-hmm. In fact, I contend. Yeah. I will know if this is truly something she answered when I indeed hear the answer. Okay. Okay. So here's the so answer. So this is this is the secret. Because, this is the secret. because I've read it, Louise. Oh, so she had nothing on you, Bob. So the secret is he's peaceful and he helps me with my math homework. Devastating. All right. Yeah. And my cursive writing, which he doesn't remember. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. In the 16th. That is true. It, uh, so yeah. Do you want to elaborate? Yes. Oh, no, uh, no. Uh, Just that um, just more to the point of our relationship that he remembers zero of up until recently. That Bob at age 18 knew third grade math. So props. Yes, he did. He was the only one in the house who did, frankly. (laughs) So uh, Um, in in 16 Magazine article entitled Bob Answers 80 Intimate Questions. Bob, how did you answer the question? What type of questions? Yeah, (laughs) there was a lot of homework. So what type of girl do you usually dislike? Dislike. Yeah. Oh, am I to answer this? Well, that well, we're, the the correct hey, no, answer would be. Yeah, typical, we have, we want no, to let go. me do the typical thing. <laughs> oh. I don't like phonies. Uh, phonies. I, loud. Loud. I, right. Loud. Uh, Aggressive. Pretentious. Forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how am I doing? You're doing good. It said girls who are trying to make a good impression on everyone when they are actually blowing their cool. Oh, that's a very hip answer. That's the 18-year-old right way to say it. <laughs> All right. It actually sounds like Bob. There were the occasional times where they did get us to actually say things. It was rare. Okay. Well, in yeah. let's see yeah. what let's see they had what they had on Paul. Okay. In the 16 magazine article entitled Our Hates and Loves by the Cow Sills, did Paul say, I hate when girls wear too much makeup and are always talking. I hate pea yes. soup, or I hate working with people who have hang ups. I hate pea soup. 
Okay, it's a trick question, all of the above. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. it sounded like all of the them. The first one so sounded familiar to my brain because I must have read that somewhere. <laughs> Never said it. Answering. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> I'm sorry. You, you said all of the above after you let him answer the question. Yeah, because I know that you guys have to go on stage and that Fritz has stuff he wants to say to you. So I don't want to I didn't want to take up too much time with my little game. I want to talk okay. about this beautiful new album, Rhythm yeah. of the World. How, what Thank year was the Fritz. last album you recorded? It's been a while. Well, we put out Global and we put out Global, which was number two of the three we've done now, Count Rhythm of the World, in like think 1998. No, you have to count oh, the Billy Benefit. Billy Benefit concert is number three of four we've put out. Okay. Um, you're right, <laughs> She's Louise. She's okay. That. That's she it. is. And the, actually, the Billy Benefit concert album is probably the one of the most expansive historical albums that, of the four. Um, but anyway. Just microphone so, rental alone. <laughs> we ended up on this Happy Together tour and on a bus together, the three of us, for three months. And we started getting inspiration to write songs really initially from Howard Kelly, Kalen of the Turtles, who kept going, you got to get up to the audience every night. And at one point, you hear that 20 times, and you finally say, I yeah, think, you write a song. I think there's a song there. <laughs> and then you hear anything 20 times. There must be 15 songs about getting up. And you said, well, all right, well, we'll do number 16. Yeah, Jackson wrote a couple. Yeah, we, there you go. We had a lady talk to us yesterday, uh, last night, when we were headed up to where we do a meet and greet, and she was coming by. And what we were just talking about? Oh, the, 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 the writing the songs. Oh, yeah. And, and and she was telling us, you know, gosh, it's really hard for us to get up. That lady. Yeah, yeah she was. Yeah. Uh, in their Aww. seats, too. Um, and we didn't even tell them to get up. She was just. their uh, happiness We do us. not tell our audience to get up. To no. our audience, that could be viewed as exercise. But nonetheless, <laughs> we started that song, which which led to other songs, and uh, we just had a frenzy of a writing spree frenzy. that was unusual. And then we said, well, look, these are pretty good songs. And then that's when you really get inspired to record them. Well, let me and ask you this. How, how does pledge music work? That was the first time I'd ever heard that term. Is this like a crowdfunding for music? Was. Yes. It was. Yeah, until it went belly up right in the middle of our campaign. Oh, Lord. It's like a Kickstarter program. So you win a goal. As we our goal of, uh, I thought we thought we could do this in $70,000. As soon as we reached that, the whole thing went south. It went bankrupt. It, they took the money of the pledgers. We never got any money. And Rock's money. But it's at this point that we're meeting our executive producer, Rock Positano, who's going to rescue the project Everything. right there. And then he steps in and rescues the whole thing. We get into the studio at Dockside. We make the recording we all wanted to make. It's mixed by Frank Filippetti, one of the best, mastered by Greg Calvi, one of the best, because Rock's kind of uh, intertwined with a lot of people in our business. And uh, in the role of executive producer, knew who to bring us to and how to, uh, his part of the equation. You need his part of the equation filled into equal success. Oh, yeah. And we're very fortunate about that service. Wow. You need the right Rock. And Rock lost a ton of money with the pledge thing because he went with us. We said, look, we've got about 300 people here pledging. We want to, you know, at least respect their pledge and take care of that. And he went, oh, well, we can either do that or we can just drop it. And we said, no, we're going to keep that. And and so he lost his money and we were worried about that. We said, Rock, man, your money he goes, hey, if I want that money, I'll go get it. <laughs> so, wow. Where did you do this album? Dockside Recording Studios in beautiful Maurice, Louisiana, the home of Steve and Wish Nails. And you live there, and you live there while you're recording, correct? Yeah, 
you live yeah. there 12 acres of isolated uh no one can get to you it was just no. us uh, the seven of us walked in with our engineer justin talkett and uh came up with what you hear and uh it was quite the experience and what do you eat Oh, well, it's really cool because you can eat regular food. So breakfast, dinners, lunches, all can be prepared. Like whoever's not in the booth working, yeah. they're down making food. So they, so Wish and, and Steve have a house, and then they have this other house where you sleep and full-on kitchen. It's a full-on yeah, huge amazing. house. And then you walk from the house, and we did it at like 10 in the morning, and we'd walk over to the studio. It was just a little bit of a walk, and we'd stay there till about 6 or 7 at night and get the heck out of there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. That every day yeah that's trying to stay healthy yep yeah it was so much fun so i want to hear about some conversations because when you when you talk about your podcast you talk about finally getting a chance to sit down and talk to the people with whom you were crisscrossing the country when you guys were all had hit records and were touring in the late 60s and now you get to have these heart-to-heart conversations with people like for example when i found out that your brother John and Jay Osmond, who are both drummers, have the same birthday and have been talking to each other on their birthdays every year. What other fun who things knew? have you found out while you talk to people? Wow. Well, I know one. Oh, I, can, I only have one, and so I can get rid of this one really quick. <laughs> what we have found out is uh, is is uh, how much they all liked our band Aww. and respected what we were doing. We never knew that until, you know. Yeah, for sure we didn't know that because we didn't hang out with any of those folks. Right. Um, one thing I learned was that Felix Cavallari played the bass with his feet. What? Wow. That was yeah, like on all the Rascals things, it's it's a it's a keyboard bass he's playing, which is was at that time very rare. Now it's done all the time. But yeah, oh. how about that? We had him on this podcast and and a, and a lovely man. Just a great yes. guy. Really nice. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah, for sure. Here's a nugget. Here's oh. a nugget. Yeah. Here's a Springsteen nugget. Okay. So we had Steve Stevie Van Zand on. And, and because we're in the same business, we like to know about people's lives on the road. And we thought, well, this is a triple A team we got going here with the East Street Band. So we said to Stevie, well, what do you guys do for sound check? <laughs> because we know what we do. And I said, do you, are you guys back at the hotel? Do you have stand-ins? That kind of thing. And Stevie just hung his head. He goes, oh, sound checks. <laughs> so here's, they can be, now Bruce Springsteen is known for like four-hour marathon yeah. shows. Yeah. And the sound check can be as long. Yes. Because Bruce micromanages and Bruce during all of their concerts had to go into each section of the auditorium or the or arena the stadium wow. or the arena and make sure the mix was okay at that section like it was at all the other sections. And now Steve Van Zandt's gonna quit because of it. This band, okay. So he's telling us good stuff because of, you know, he quit. He thought it was the worst career decision in his life, but he doesn't know the Sopranos is coming and other things are going to happen. But at the time, he just couldn't can you imagine a four-hour sound check followed by a four-hour wow. show? That's eight yeah. hours. <laughs> I do remember that documentary. I, I don't know if they were making Darkness on the Edge of Town or one of their albums, but it was he just was trying to get the right um, drum sound out of Max, and he just Max would hit, and 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 Bruce would yell, "Stick!" He didn't want to hear the stick; he wanted to hear the drum. So uh, that sounds like your brother Billy to me a lot. <laughs> yeah, a little intense there, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Any what que- else you got, kids? Um, any questions for us? Talk about nuclear yeah. winter. Oh, nuclear winter, yeah. Unfortunately, 
I brought up a lot of bad subjects, and I apologize. I didn't realize. I love love where you're going, Fritz. The the problem with nuclear winter is that it's relevant today more than it was even when it was written, which was in the 80s by a friend of mine, Peter Bunch, and myself. We had a band called Channel 9. But anyway, nuclear winter was a fear back then, but a long fear like, Oh, can you just imagine? Can you just imagine? Now we have it on Rhythm of the World. Just as soon as it comes out, yeah, it was a little all hell's breaking loose yeah. over, mm-hmm. over pretty good. Putin. Yeah. And we're going, oh, my God. So it's like a Rhythm of the World. Yeah, nuclear winter, you can blow it up. Rhythm of the World, you know, have your fun, but be careful for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. You know, lend a hand. This is our main suggestion on the record, to, that we should lend a hand. Not not nuclear winter, but go go the direction of lend a hand. There's a lot of beautiful sounds on the album and, you know, everything feels relevant. And maybe the lesson is everything's always relevant. Everything about humanity is always relevant and things go in cycles and they come back and you have to. It's really true. And yes, Louise, cycles, because if we think about it, the last time the councils had a, a for true release that was getting out to a larger public, the same darn stuff was going on. We had social unrest. We had political unrest. We had racial issues. And it's like the councils popped in. War. We popped in with our let's all just try and, you know, maybe be happy. Yeah. Uh, well, it's just ironic to me that it, that the climate is incredibly similar. Has, has Have the streaming services been um, beneficial to you, Spotify and all those things? Yeah. This is kind of what I was going to say, Fritz, in that, you know, we sit here with, with an album out, but the landscape is so different Fast. looking. And, you know, yeah, you can have a cover in like a shindig magazine, but, you know, that's going to get to 10,000 people or, or, you know, the old days of mm-hmm. like, getting it to the radio station. Now it's like blasting all over the country. That's just not happening anymore. So or one Ed Sullivan. Yeah. One, or that's one Johnny Carson or mm-hmm. one Jimmy Kimmel or Fallon. That was it. You were it. But were nowadays. It. Yeah. And so we're really we're in our first tier that we call it of the album, which is basically PR, low hanging fruit stuff we can get without spending money on, you know, Mm -hmm. but it has to go up to another level soon. And we're going to be going to that level. Awesome. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm excited it to hear, to be that, at that level. you know, any way we can help, we would be happy to. Thank so you, please listen to Rhythm of the World by the Cow Sills. It is extraordinary. You How many shows absolutely. are you doing a day? One show a day? Six days a week? One. <laughs> That's all you need. Please. Okay. I was just curious. That's a lot. That's a lot. Okay. <laughs> no ideas. Well, you guys six are so of, talented. Six nights a week. And by the way, there's many people in our show who actually do do a second show yes. during the day. Oh, my God. But they're a whole o'clock. lot younger. <laughs> I mean, a dancer that might be dancing in our show tonight is going to go run the spotlight at the Americana Theater yeah. for the, for the Elvis show. Yeah. Wow. Well, Andy Williams, isn't the Andy Williams Theater? That's the largest theater in Branson, isn't it? I think I believe it is. so. Yeah, I believe it's one and of them. Actually, Tony Orlando's got a two thousand seater as oh, well, okay. though. Okay. And I, yeah. I went when I was with the Cow Sills in Branson when we were making the movie. I took a pilgrimage to the Andy Williams Theater. There's actually a river. There's a Moon River you, that runs yeah, through. Yeah. Oh God, Louise, it is so sweet around here. Mm-hmm. Every night they have Andy piped all through the parking oh. lot. He comes and he's in a singing rock. He, there's a rock that I sit next to and Andy comes out of it. Oh my goodness, Suzanne. Like amazing. Andy's like a hug to me. I just love oh, him. Oh, big time right. for us too. Yeah. Wait. Oh yeah, we have Cow Hill mugs that were from when you guys sang at Fenway on our table. I don't know if you can see them. What? Hey, oh, you know what? I'm broke. Oh, I can send you another one. I've got like three. I wish I was down there to see I you guys. Have fun. 
dancing. The Kelsos always love dancing. You guys are awesome. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Have a great time. How long until the show starts? How far away from show? Um, seven thirty. Seven thirty. Oh. All right. Enjoy. I love Be you guys. Be well. Great talking to you guys. You're always so entertaining. See you later. I love you. Love you guys. Thanks we for having us, Chris. You're welcome. Good course, to see you. Always. Thanks for getting the. Thanks for getting the word out, you guys. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Dreaming of Christmas, <laughs> just like the ones I used to know. Say those in the lake, snow is glistening. A beautiful sight. We're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. I love it. Have fun, you guys. <laughs> Be safe. Merry Christmas. <laughs> okay. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Okay, Bob. Oh, oh, oh. Steve Chiatekas hosts KCRW's Greater LA, a daily show that brings you a little closer to the places and people of this giant, often unwieldy region that millions call home. Steve, tell us about your latest project, Born and Raised. Uh, millions live here? Oh my God, I had no idea. No. <laughs> yeah, you can start counting, you'll see. Wow. Yeah. Uh, born and Raised, you know, I am... Uh, Born and raised is sort of a labor of love, right? Because in LA and and Fritz, you know this. You got both of you know this that that this is a city. Uh, it's a it's a city of transients. It's a city of people who come from you know different parts of the universe. And so what we see are people who grew up here, who have been here all of their lives, who've been here multi generationally, whose neighborhoods, cities, towns have just changed you know, uh, uh, wholeheartedly from from one generation to the next. And so you've got like a place like Boyle Heights, which has changed immensely since the days of the 30s and the 40s. Boyle Heights is actually a big Jewish community right. in LA for, for many, many years. Yeah. And then and then uh, a large Latino contingency moved in there. And, um, and now you see a lot of gentrification happening in Boyle Heights. And it's all it's 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 all a product or a byproduct of how expensive it is to live in LA. And so people are always looking for a, a you know a better less expensive place to live. They're looking for a cooler place to live. They're looking for some culture, you know, things like that, um which is what new angelinos want, but the people who have been here for a long long time are the ones who suffer. They're the ones who get kicked out or or priced out of the market. And, and if so an area some- gets more expensive, they call it gentrification. They call it gentrification. I mean, obviously, it is gentrification. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and you know, I don't want to demonize it like it's the worst thing about because gentrification happens all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, it happens in New York and Chicago and smaller cities too, where it becomes more expensive to live, and people are looking for different neighborhoods to go to. So, do you call them interlopers? Do you? Call, I mean, what mm-hmm. what do you call people who are just trying to find a different place to live? Fancy. Um, Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I moved to LA uh, 14 years ago, and it was a it was a wonderful experience for me. And I I met many people, and I I don't think I was a I moved to West LA and Santa Monica, so I don't think anyone accused me of gentrifying. But but it's it's one of those things where it's like you see people who are priced out of their out of their homes or priced out of their apartments, and where else can they go? They can't afford to live in a four thousand dollar a month apartment mm. high-rise building somewhere mm-hmm. in la um it's just it's the you know, perennial it, problem in southern california it's never it sure going is. away mm-hmm. yeah, i used to listen to you i used to listen to you between five and six o'clock in the morning on npr 
Marketplace Morning Report, and I loved it because it was the first indication of how the stock market was going to do on Wait, that Wait, Fritz, day. were you still up from the night before? <laughs> well, it depends. Explain yourself. That's bathroom break number three at 5 o'clock in okay. the morning. Okay. <laughs> Let's and, do the numbers. Yeah. <laughs> I remember it well, um, yeah. and you know, I moved. I moved to LA in the middle of um, the the Great Recession, uh, when you know Bear Stearns was was going. Oh, I know. Belly wow. up and wow. Lehman Brothers and all these others, and they were like, "Can you get here as fast as you can?" Because where did you we, do that show from? Them. The Culver City Studios, or where did you do that from? Did you do well, it here? NPR the 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 NPR West Bureau is in Culver City. Mm -hmm. This is, Marketplace Productions is a different facility. Oh, it's, okay. it's not NPR. Mm -hmm. It's American Public Media, which mm -hmm. is owned by Minnesota Public Radio. Mm -hmm. And their studios are in downtown LA at 3rd and Fig. Oh, okay. Um, right across from the Weston Bonaventure. I think so, a lot of people might want to know a little bit more about how all the NPRs are connected and how they're separate. I mean, just like there are commercial radio broadcast networks, TV and radio networks, there are public TV and radio networks as well. So mm -hmm. they do, they all fill a different role. There aren't, you know, NPR is the main, I don't want to call it the main, but it's, it's, it's the big one, right? It's the one with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of stations across the country. Um, but there are other entities that that certainly offer public radio programming, such as American Public Media, which is is what I told you. And and there are different, you know, production houses that do different shows. You know, Marketplace does one thing. There are different distributors, just like there are podcast distributors and, and TV show distributors. There are radio, public radio distributors as well. And PRX. so PRX, of course, of course, one of the big ones. So how well. do you, how do you guys decide like what how much local content you want versus how much of the great shows that people are very familiar with na that are nationally famous? Like how do you how do you determine your lineup? Um, what we what we air on KCRW? Yeah. I think, you know, I mean, we know the people who listen to the radio station. I mean, just the 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 fact that we have so many members. We have probably what 45, 50,000 members mm -hmm. at the radio station. So we know what people want, what their tastes are. We also have the luxury um as being one of the first, you know, public radio true public radio stations in the country um we were one of the first on board with this new network called npr back in the early 70s we were one of the first to to put on morning edition and all things considered um la is the at that time it was the third largest market but now it's the second largest market in the country so a very important one for um for the national network as well and so you know we we can understand sort of what our taste is and we and and over the years We've tweaked it a little bit, but we are one of the few um, unique dual format public radio stations where we have news and information, which is morning edition, all things considered, you know, my show, Madeline Brand, other shows as well, the culture shows that we run on the weekends. But also we have music programming that we air from nine to noon, that we air at night after eight o'clock. Um, and overnight, we have an eclectic uh, 24 uh, stream that we have online that's 24 hours a day. We have a news stream that's 24 hours a day online. So um, we you know, we ask our members, we we communicate with them as much as we can to find out what it is that they like. And they like the music. They like the news and that mixture. They don't want, you know, 24 hours. We're just going to give you the information you need, because I think people are hammered over the head over, you know, what, what's two, going on. Two questions. Them. Is it the same audience for your news content as it is for the music? And, it second, can of, be. and second of all, 
who is a typical KCRW listener? Um, very cool people, Fritz, listen to KCRW. No, I, I believe that, people who are smart. <laughs> well, I mean, how long have you lived in L.A.? I mean, you, 40 you years. Were, weren't you brought here with the mission? Back yeah. in, no. <laughs> yes, I was. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Who is the KCRW? I mean, you know that that we are. Look, there are two main public radio stations in town, main ones that are NPR mm-hmm. uh, affiliates. There's KPCC on the east on the east side mm-hmm. in Pasadena, and then there's KCRW. KCRW is the I, I always call it the original. It's been here for a long time. KPCC mm-hmm. was much smaller until Minnesota Public Radio bought it and and put a lot of money into it to make it a a, a contender and a a major player. And they do very well as a news and information source. So. When we look at like the people who listen to our radio station, we look at, you know, I mean, again, it 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 has its roots in music. It has its roots as a as a pure college radio station. The, the call letters mean college radio works, KCRW, mm-hmm. um, to, to you know, licensed to Santa Monica College. So we tried to do, you know, be very um, not to overuse the word eclectic about what we do, to try and use music and let, you know, students understand what it is um, that we're doing with the music and things like that. And and I think when you look at the audience and and who we're targeting, um, and I'll get to the first question, which was, you know, do the people who like the music also like the news? And, and the short answer is yes. Um, we do see a lot of crisscross with that. Mm-hmm. Um uh, we do see a lot of, you know, for a long time it was we would do news in the morning and then our numbers would drop a little bit during the music. But I think we're seeing like all day parts that that have been doing pretty well. And a lot of those listeners are the same. So it, it's, you know, we, we have an, a unique product. Um, we have a it, it is a I always say it's an indelibly connected L.A. product. You know, we mm-hmm. are. Uh, you're not going to find a station like ours in very many places across Especially the your presentation, because you really drill down on the culture of Southern California. You're one of the smartest people on the radio. I love listening to Me? you. Oh, my yeah. God. That no, is, you that are. No, you are. Honor. You are. And God bless public radio, because in this this chasm between culture classes now, and mostly AM radio, but even FM radio, talk radio is so polarizing, and it's all heat and no light, and it's awful. And so I'm just so thankful that there's public radio to listen there, because you assume your audience is smart enough to be able to parse this information and make up their own mind about it. And I just... Well, it's called nuance. Yeah. You know, yeah. which is which is missing in in radio. I mean, you remember when AM radio? I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, listening to 89 WLS in Chicago. Oh, I grew yeah. up in Garrettiana, mm-hmm. and I listened to John Records Landek. I listened Larry to him Lujak. when he was in Philadelphia. WIBG, John Records Landecker, and Larry Lujak, and all Larry those great Lujak, guys, man. all those great guys from Chicago. That was an and, amazing media market, both radio and television. Oh, Chicago? Are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. Chicago and LA media markets are both. I think LA is a, a wonderful. Um, mm-hmm media market as well but but when you think about seriously going back to the days of like the 50s 60s 70s when it was am radio and it was music and it was pop music chr it mm-hmm. was you know um it was your your state you know w uh, uh abc in new york mm-hmm. or or uh wnbc in new york khj so out here in uh in Los khj mm-hmm. that's right kfwb which was you know a mm-hmm. large news presence i mean you have so many radio stations that were rooted in music <clears throat> Or mm-hmm. middle of the road, as they used to call it, where mm-hmm. they'd have music and then they'd have a newscast or they'd put, you know, both news and information on. And it changed as FM radio really took hold in the 70s and early 80s. 
um, a lot of people made the switch and music sounded better on FM. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you saw all these AM stations that were powerhouses in the 50s, 60s and 70s, you know, go either go dark, lose a lot of money and they had to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that you can put on AM radio that sounds okay is a voice. It's right wing crazy people. (laughs) <laughs> and a lot of right wing crazy. I mean, seriously, yeah, I mm-hmm. there is no doubt. I worked for one of them. I worked for several news talk stations, mm-hmm. commercial stations in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. You want to? I mean, very right wing. You went to the fun. University of Alabama, Birmingham, and when I read that, I won't say I was horrified, but let's just say I was surprised <laughs> because you don't seem like somebody who might have come from there. And that's a very judgmental and probably a very shallow thing to say. It just surprised me. Yeah, I mean, look, just like any other place, people <laughs> there are stereotypes. There are stereotypes about California that I can't stand either. Oh, you know, absolutely. people are like, oh, you just drink oat milk all day long. And it's, <laughs> it's not what we do in California. You know, Alabama is a beautiful state. My my sister and my mom still live there. I go see them. I can I can fathom it like once or twice a year. That's about it. <laughs> um, but it is a beautiful state built full of beautiful people. And and the thing I think, and, and we have to realize, you know, because I wanted to talk a little bit about the election, too. Mm-hmm. And I don't oh, know we were going to talk about too, that. Yeah. I don't know how much time we have, but we, we have to get to know one another again because yeah. we have really lost our minds. Um, and I don't I don't want to point blamed toward anybody like you know whose fault it is that this happened but we are so polarized as a nation and i I was talking to i do some hits in australia um the abc down there i i've been to australia and i've got friends in the media markets there in sydney and melbourne and they'll call me sometimes for like an american perspective and i'll go on the radio with them on their afternoon drive programs in sydney and melbourne and you know i i talked to them right before the election and and you know they were like do you think, Steve, there will be a civil war in the United States? And, you know, and I'm like, oh, God, I don't I hope not. That's terrible to think about. And I said, there's no geographical line like a Mason Dixon line that separates the north. I mean, we don't have that anymore. What we do have are differences of opinion and differences of values and differences in what we think the federal government should do. And I, I think a civil war will look like nothing else we've ever experienced. And God forbid anything like that happens. But, you know, and I, I made the description and I said, you know, we, we have this, we don't even have a Venn diagram anymore, right? <laughs> we have just two circles. Mm-hmm. They're just on opposite sides of the country. With deep and space in between. That's right. Yeah, nothing. There's no commonality. And we've got to find a way to talk to one another again and stop talking over each other. Well, I feel um, like we're sort of digesting or we're sort of, kind of like taking in whatever it is that we want in that moment because it's doable. You can curate exactly what enters your brain. And so that becomes like crack or whatever will make you feel good in that moment. And so we've come away from that time period where you had to sort of listen to or watch whatever was on. And so you were going to, in order to get to Gilligan's Island, you were going to ingest some knowledge or do some thinking. And now you can mainline, you know, whatever it is your particular inclination or ideology is. But like, how has NPR changed or adapted when we're all going to this sort of uh, curated or streaming media that that you can pause and come back to, and it's still exactly what you want to listen to, and not anything that's in the general consciousness. Like, how are you guys adapting to that? 
Well, I mean, I, I we're doing what the others have done. I mean, you were how long were you with Westwood One? You know, you had to. I sort was with of, Premier. Oh, you were Premier. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I thought you were at Westwood One. No, it, um, no, but like you know, like we're talking about, we have to accept everybody. So, yeah. Westwood One, valid, valuable programming for sure. Not and, our, and, not our enemy. <laughs> to to find to find, um, I, I had radio network in my head. Yeah, it's fine. It, yeah, yeah. So anyway, to find a good, you know, like what NPR went all in on podcasts, mm, and they early. have I think like, uh, very early, absolutely, to understand to knowing that on demand is the way that we're all going to go. Um, we don't have, I mean, we kind of have it in our cars now. We listen to podcasts for sure, but there's going to be a time when we get in our car and it's just going to be the internet on that screen. Yep. And you're not going to tune AM, FM Mm-mm. like we used to. Mm-hmm. You're not going to put a CD, CD. We don't have those anymore or cassette or whatever it is that we used to have in cars. You're just going to go in and you're going to, you're going to go online and it's going to be easy to do it. And it's, and it's already here. So as far as finding the best way to go forward and what NPR did was they they really invested heavily in podcasts and on-demand radio programming. They have a, a, a just a huge breadth of, of, of different programs from news programs to the politics podcasts and things like that, that I think do very, very well. Some of them are like some of the most successful podcasts in the country. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm proud of them for that. But I don't know if there's anyone on the right that's listening to NPR programming. And 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 alas, there's our problem, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, but but you know, and what do they think? They're they're told. I mean, what does the right do when when they take power? Like I'm expecting as soon as the Republicans, and it looks like the Republicans obviously are going to take the House barely. Um, do they go after the corporation for public broadcasting again? It's, it's well, one I their- wanted to talk to you about that. Back during Reagan and Bush won, there was a period of time when they wanted to defund public broadcasting and just make it part of the part of the, uh, you know, a, a private business model. And they also took away the fairness doctrine and ruined broadcasting in a whole bunch of different ways. Well, it, that's a big one for it. Yeah. The fairness it, doctrine it, was a big one. Yeah. 86. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was huge. But how would the fairness doctrine survive podcasting? That's the question. So, well, if they, nobody, well, cause the FCC doesn't regulate podcasting. Yeah. FCC is, is a broadcast, you know, that's the over the air stuff. And we mm-hmm. don't use, we don't have the internet as sort of a, what is it? A common carrier, mm-hmm. right? Um, and until we deem it as a common carrier, then this is what we're going to get, that it's a private entity and you can do whatever you want with the Internet. Um, you know, the spectrum is ours. That's, you know, yeah. that's the air. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why the FCC regulates it. But it doesn't regulate it as much as it used to, no. for sure. All right. Let's get to the election. Uh, if you go uh, under the KCRW website, they have a great clip. They have several great clips, but one of Steve talking about why L.A. takes so long to count ballots in the midterm elections. And that's become everybody's question. Would Arizona please wrap this up? We have to get on with our lives. <laughs> and, and we're still counting, so to speak. So why, why does it take so long in California? Well, it takes long because uh, you've got 10 million people in L.A. County. And, and let's say 10 million people in L.A. County, and let's say 20 percent of those people vote. So you're counting 2 million votes and you're doing it through different systems. Um, L.A., uh, move to a new voting center apparatus where it's no longer polling places. There are voting system of uh, voting centers all across the county. So they're having and they've got electronic ballots. And then, of course, they counter it with paper ballots, too. I'm, I'm uh, 
99 and a half percent sure that they have paper ballots that are that are um, um, backing up those electronic votes as well. And, and you know, you've got to also in the mail in ballots, you have to um, check signatures. So you compare the signatures to the one on file with the one that you signed on the back of that envelope. Mm-hmm. And so it takes a minute. And California mm-hmm. takes a minute. There are 40 million people in California, mm-hmm. you know. So what, um, what is going on locally that I feel like if, if you're from L.A., this is where entertainment comes from. And when you hear the word Los Angeles, it doesn't even perk up your ears the way it would if you heard the name of your hometown and you lived in Boston or Boulder or Baton Rouge or Buffalo or Bend or whatever. So when you hear L.A., you just you don't. We we still don't know who our mayor is. What should we LA citizens be paying attention to that we tend to ignore in favor of MSNBC or national politics? What are we missing here? Um, in L- well, I mean, we have a new sheriff. Do we? Uh, okay. We, we do. Yeah. Thank we God. do. Who's that? Uh, Robert Luna, the former, you know, the retired police chief of Long Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, defeated Alex Villanueva. It's very uncommon for uh, an incumbent sheriff to lose. Um, Ironically, Alex Villanueva beat the incumbent sheriff four years ago, Jim McDonald. So now Alex Villanueva is in that seat. He has lost to Robert Luna. So we have a new, I think that's a big deal. And how will that change things? How is he? Well, I mean, I I think it'll change things. uh, Villanueva was a very bombastic sheriff. I mean, you know, he'd gone after like reporters Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, put put the picture of a reporter on the screen saying that she was being investigated for. I mean, just all kinds of things like that. He would do a Facebook video, you know, lambasting different politicians and different people. And it, it just wasn't what the L.A. County Sheriff had had done before. Now, look, there have been. All kinds of scandals. Um, uh, you had um, Lee Baca, who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who had Alzheimer's disease, but also was was convicted, right, mm-hmm. of, of corruption. Um, Paul Tanaka, his assistant. You had even going back in Orange County, you had Corona, who who I believe went to jail. Um, so so you know, L- L.A. and Southern California is no stranger to. Um, all kinds of uh, uh, corruption. Shenanigans, yeah. There's another interesting subject. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. And I think Luna maybe brings some freshness to it. I don't know what he's going to do. Let's hope he's at least a decent guy and and looks at, you know, all of the things going on at the Sheriff's Department, including um, reports of uh, gangs, actual deputies who are in gangs. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Which has been reported, widely reported. Wow. Uh, Another great question clip that plays on your website with you is how this is another top of mind topic right now how election officials fight conspiracies and how they can push back against that give us a give us a thumbnail of that discussion how do you fight conspiracies i don't know how you do that fritz yeah. I, you know i i mean look i have a i have a family and i i think we all probably do maybe we do of you know, people who believe different things. Um, and I, and I've, I've actually said this to several of my coworkers, you know, if I can't convince my own family to believe that the election wasn't stolen in 2020, how am I going to convince somebody on the radio? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it is, it, we, we, and again, it, it goes back to that, the, the lack of the Venn diagram and the fact that we're talking over one another. Um, we just believe what we believe because either someone tells us or because we have, you know, skin in the game. Um, and and that's all that matters. And it doesn't and, and what, what whatever you have to say, whatever evidence you can put forth doesn't much matter. And I don't know how you fix that. I, I mean, maybe you fix it if you're The New York Times instead of saying, 
former President Trump's falsehoods and you use the word lie Mm -hmm. instead, which Mm -hmm. always sort of gets my goat. Mm -hmm. The fact that, you know, they use these, you know, these very antiseptic benign terms yeah. like falsehoods or misinformation or the and it's mm-hmm. like why don't you call it what it is mm-hmm. even, even election denying is still kind of a election like, denying is a very antiseptic term right you it's know like they this... lied about the election and so there is incontrovertible proof that the election was not stolen they went to court 63 times and lost Almost all of them, with the exception of one that was a very small case in Pennsylvania. So when you look at all of these things, and we could say this until we're blue in the face or red in the face, whatever Mm -hmm. you want to say. okay. Mm -hmm. but if people aren't going to listen to you, if they don't care about the facts or they don't they only know something's amiss. I mean, Donald Trump went on television and said, I just know I won by a landslide. People believe what they no proof. But people believe lies that they wish were true. Mm-hmm. And they and they welcome yes, people to say something very truthy that that is just aligned with whatever their fantasy is of reality. I want to talk for a second about Rick Caruso because you know he, he you know he certainly put a lot of money into his campaign. I still don't know who our mayor is going to be. What are your thoughts on him? She's ahead right now, which I find very surprising. Yeah. So talk about let's 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 talk about the mayoral race. We don't really know who he is, other than it's. It, I think like most people like me feel like he's a Republican parading around as a Democrat to win as mayor of Los Angeles. What are what well, do you yeah, know? I mean, he wasn't going to win as a Republican. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I think the last person to do that was who was Dick Reardon. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Dick Reardon was, by the way, a very liberal Republican. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he wasn't the Republican in the mold of, you know, no, he was a Schwarzenegger Republican. Republican. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. So, All right. so you know, owned it, some businesses. And that's what Rick, I think Rick Caruso, it's interesting because, you know, he owns these properties, these developments. There's, you know, the the Americana brand in Glendale and there's the Grove and um, the place in Pacific Palisades. And, you know, he amassed um, that kind of money. Um grew up in L.A., so feels a connection to L.A. Um, There are a lot of folks who believe he's like very Trump-esque when it comes to, you know, I'm just going to buy my way into the election. He spent $100 million. Um, And by the way, it may have worked. Uh, I'll tell you, some of those ads, you know, the the anti-Karen Bass ads were devastating. The one with the Scientology, I just thought that's going to crush her. That one ad alone could take her down, but she's still floating ahead. It's very interesting. She's a and and Fritz, I think, you know, if you look at the numbers right now, I think she's probably going to pull it out. Mm -hmm. Now, that's that's a based on nothing aside from, you know, we have this many votes. I I think there's still a lot of the San Fernando Valley that's been counted Mm -hmm. and other parts that have not been counted. But here here's here's my thinking on this, because you you've seen a left lurch of the L.A. City Council Mm -hmm. and in the, the same electorate that voted for the folks who are making that leftward lurch also are voting in the mayor's race as well. And they're not going to vote for Rick Caruso. Mm-hmm. They're going to vote yes. for Karen Mack. Yes. So uh, it's just a hunch. I have no, there's, there, I have no data aside from something anecdotal in my head <laughs> that I think she's going to pull it out. It's going to be very close. Um, and it's going to prove that you can, you certainly can, can buy an election. Wow. $100 million. That's a lot of money for a mayoral election. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a lot of money for any election. I mean, he could have just, you know, 
bought a it's boat the same like amount a normal in rich the, person. Uh, in the uh, Georgia Senate race, $100 million, yeah. which is insane. Well, our producer, Dina, has a question for you. Yes. Hi, Steve. Is this on? Hi, Dina. Is this thing yeah, on? I can hear you. Um, so my question hopefully is quick. Uh, it's just an interesting observation some people have made about the um, L.A. mayoral um candidates that uh there's like a celebrity divide right between who voted like um Gwyneth Paltrow and the Kardashians they voted for Rick Caruso and like Mark Hamill (laughs) voted for Karen Bass and it's sort of like an interesting for those of us that live in Los Angeles it's such a unique experience for like you know who's the celebrity that voted like for the candidate that I voted for and for other people in the country it's interesting too because you can really see like you know what Chris Pratt's like where his politics lie and like you know some people may decide how they feel about him how they feel about watching his movies you know seeing who he voted for for mayor of los angeles even though he hopes it's the other way around he hopes that if you like him you'll pick the candidate right yeah so i mean do you have any thoughts on that well i mean it's la so obviously you know and and actors typically aren't very quiet about people that they want to be president right so why would it be different about the mayor of la mm-hmm. by the the kardashians if they're in calabasas i don't think calabasas is in the city of la is it i don't know i think calabasas is, is its own city can they even vote for mayor pardon me just let me hit the who cares button here it'll just take a second. <laughs> see that's what i mean like the foreigners coming in and voting right. if those kardashians yep. voted those are illegal votes see i should have said katie perry and gwen paltrow because i'm you, come in, you can't come in from calabasas and vote i know woodland hills is a part of la but i i i think calabasas is another maybe is they're another. using caitlin's address to vote i don't know it's illegal it's i'm denying it we're gonna say something uh, fritz you wanted to say something about bud friedman and, uh, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. But I get, yeah. can, can, do I have time to ask him one oh, more yeah, question? Oh, yeah, okay. sure. Uh, there's another very wonderful uh, clip on your website, uh, Steve. And I, I would recommend that everybody who with children or grandchildren listen to it. It's how to teach kids about the climate crisis yeah. without instilling fear in them. And you've talked about the climate crisis on your show i just think that's just a really beautiful piece of information that parents can listen to and absorb so i hope they will we've we've had you on talking about i know and your credibility it took two months for your credibility to return to normal (laughs) 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 i mean how do you look at how do you look at the things that are you know the storms the sheer oh my god it's crazy something's going on i mean how much more proof do you need yeah, you can't look at the data and and how warm things are. How long? I mean, look. Somebody said the other day, you know, it rained last week, right? Which was really nice. Yeah. Um, we got we got a couple of days of rain. I, I forget how much. It was like more than an inch, though. I think mm-hmm. in L.A., which is which was miraculous. Mm-hmm. And they were like, "Oh, thank God, we got some rain." And I was like, "You better enjoy it because it could be March before it rains." <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, the people that uh, I, I I know there are climate deniers, and I I, I get them because I can I know exactly who they are. But the people that know there's climate change but don't care like well what's the problem all the water from the melting glaciers will eventually drown out all the brush fires and everything will be okay it's oh these God. kardashians that are pouring in across the border to vote for uh, i'm, Rick I'm telling you that, that's what it is <laughs> yeah that's scary mm-hmm. it's scary no it's not going to work itself out look the, the planet has gone through what the planet has gone through we've had ice ages we've had you know i mean supposedly well, what killed off the dinosaurs a, a giant meteor kardashians right? 
sucks. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. All right. So, yeah. Look so, it up. Look I it mean, up. the planet's been through a lot over the course of millions and millions of years. So when you when you think about it, I mean, and then and, and, and I think I've talked to you about this before. Think about how many like at any given time, there are upwards of 30,000 aircraft in the air on planet earth mm -hmm. circling the globe like yeah. going from one place to 30,000 aircraft at mm -hmm. any given time think of all the jet fuel the exhaust out of the oh, jet I know fuel. Mm -hmm. yes absolutely yeah, I mean so for you to think that we don't have anything to do with it mm -hmm. no. or that or that the planet's not changing or something's going on mm -hmm. or the you know the fossil fuels that we use or all of those things I think is my, it's myopic at best mm -hmm. you know A and, thousand percent and, right my friend yeah so you're preaching. To the I, I don't I don't know what you I don't know what you do about it. I mean, except you try and ban the things that make the earth, you know, warm up. And we did that with yeah. the remember the ozone layer. Mm -hmm. Remember the big hole that we had in Antarctica? Yeah. yeah. We we stopped using aerosol cans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think and styrofoam cups and all that and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it helped. I have mm -hmm. roll on so, deodorant on mm -hmm. me at this. Very yeah, exactly. Saving the planet. Well, You're I, I do want to say in closing, you are so good at your job. And you, oh. you, 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 you do what we podcasters strive to do, which is develop this intimacy. When you, when you listen to you, it always feels like it's you and your interview person and one listener in a very small, dark room. And if the conversation is you low, just made it creepy. No, I didn't mean to make it creepy. I just I think that's I, I love that kind of intimacy. And when you're in the car, it's very um, I don't want to say soothing, but it's very intimate, comfortable, it's warm and intimate, comfortable. Yeah. Well. What did the TV school teach you, Fritz? About I didn't go to TV watching. school, which is painfully obvious to anybody that you're talking me. to one. But you're person. always talking to one person. Oh, no, that's that's exactly correct. You're always talking to what you're mm -hmm. never talking. Like when mm -hmm. people say hello, everybody, it's like I'm not in an arena. No, with the no. microphone coming no. down from you're the ceiling. I'm yep. talking to one person. That's and what Rick Dees taught me that you never say you guys. It's one oh. person. Yeah. No, that's true. And 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 TV, you're breaking the fourth wall, so you establish this false intimacy with your eyes as well. That's but you right. keep up the good work, my friend. You're oh, a sound of you, reason in this oh, vast so landscape nice. of weirdness. Thank you for uh, inviting me on the show. And Fritz, we want you back on Greater LA, Louise too. You both well, let's come go. On. Let's Absolutely. do it. If you'll forgive us, we're going to we're going to give us a point of personal privilege here. I wanted to uh, send my condolences out to the family of Bud Friedman, who was the founder of the Improv, and all the comedians whose careers he was responsible for. Uh, his his success in L.A. is interesting, but if you really want to learn about his success, learn about him starting that club in Greenwich Village in New York or wherever it was, and all the stars who were on Broadway would perform and then come into the improv and then do sets later. It's, it's, it's just a great story. God bless him. He was 90 and he passed away. And we want to wish our best to Jay Leno, who uh, had this gasoline explosion in his face. He's in the Grossman Bird Center, but the latest I heard was He's stable, and we're praying for his recovery. Heal, well. my friend. Yep. Sure are. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please tell social media about it. Hashtag awesomest podcast ever. <laughs> 
It's also super helpful if you could give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts. And we've got some prizes coming up for folks who do exactly that. You can sign up for our fun and dishy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our guests, Robert Manny, Steve Giotakis, and Bob, Paul, and Susan Cowsill. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path.